So, um, for those of you for those of you who haven't been here for a while or are just joining us, we've been in a series uh, called Gospel Centered Church. This is how we started off our year, and we've been talking about what really what a gospel centered church is for us in particular. You know, for members and for those of you who've been here, you know that this is kind of where uh, the vision that God has placed on us. It's it's where God has been moving us. And we're going to conclude this series today. I wanted to review a little bit about the things that we've talked about. Um, and I'm just going to throw out kind of the message titles. And I do encourage you, and I said this last week at the, at the members' breakfast, but for those of you who are members, if you've missed parts of this series, please go back. And I usually don't say this right, but go back and, and listen and, and, you know, catch up online, uh, get those messages, because this is a big part of kind of what we're doing and, and who we're aiming to be, what we want God to do in us as a church. And so... Uh, so if you remember, just a little bit of review, we started at the beginning of the year, we talked about living before the throne, right? What it is to be before the throne of God. What we do when we come here in church is not necessarily to be focused on ourselves and to just think about how God is relevant to us. But what, what we aim to do, because we know we need this, is to come before the picture of God on his throne. Right, that God is at the center of all reality. Remember, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5, and it, it goes to the center of all things, which is God on his throne, and then it moves outward from there with, you know, the creatures and the elders and the angels and really all people everywhere worshiping God. That, that's the picture of our reality that we need. That's, that's where we need our minds to be set. We talked about what that is and, and that a church, a gospel-centered church needs to do that, needs to live there. Then we talked about being a creature of the word, right? That, that the word is not something that, that the church doesn't form the gospel. The gospel forms the church, right? The, the gospel and the word of God is the center. It's what creates us. It's what makes us. It's, what, it's where our culture and our values and everything that we believe in comes from, not the other way around. Right? And we talked about being always on mission and going to the nations the past couple weeks, right? That God hasn't put us here just to receive something, just to get a blessing from him. We kind of juxtapose the true gospel with the prosperity gospel, right? Which says, hey, if, you've, if you have enough faith, if you do enough stuff, if you're obedient enough, then God will give you money. God will give you the job. God will give you the family. God will give you health. He will provide for you all the things that you need. And the real gospel doesn't say that, right? Doesn't really promise us family or health or, you know, any of those things. What it promises us is Christ. It's greater than all those things, right? That as long as we're on this earth, we will have this missional purpose that we will live for, for as long as God wants us to. And after we die... Death will serve us. We'll be in heaven with him forever. Our bodies will be perfected. I'm pretty close already, right? No, I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm far from that. That was, that was a joke. You guys can laugh because it's really not close to true. But um, in heaven, right, all that stuff's going to be taken care of. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more shame, right, no more sickness. But here on this earth, that's not what God promises us. That's not what God has for us. And finally, we're, we're going to talk about today uh, the phrase, people over programs. Now, okay, we'll just start with this, okay? A little, little math today, okay? A little test. 
if I offered you $10,000 a day, every day, for let's say a, a month, or one penny doubled every day for a month, which would you take? A <laughs> little bit of, yeah, this, is too much, this is too hard math actually, right, for, for, a, for a Sunday. But many people, now, you know, math people, you, you probably know what the right answer is. And we can suspect what the right answer is. But let me tell you how right the penny is over the $10,000 a day. Okay, $10,000 a day, if you got $10,000 a day at the end of 30 days, you'd have what is it, guys? <laughs> you guys are like, I don't know. Um, so three, uh, at the end of 30 days, you'd have $300,000, right? So $10,000 a day at the end of 30 days, you'd have $300,000. I see we're not, we're not good at math here. Um, one penny every day doubled every day. So one penny, and then the next day you get two pennies, right? Every day at the end of 30 days, do you know how much you'd have? You'd have... million dollars. That doesn't sound right, right? You're like, no, that can't be right. That doesn't sound right. It is. I checked it. I went on a calculator and I, because I read this in a book, right? And I was like, no, that can't be right. And I went and I was like, just pushing the thing, the equals. I was like, oh my gosh, it's right. It's right. In four months, right? With the $10,000 a day, you'd have $1.2 million. In four months of one penny being doubled every single day, do you know what you would have at the end of four months? You'd have 13 decillion dollars. Do you even know what that is? Billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, nonillion, decillion. That's what it is. It's 13 with 33 zeros after it. 33 zeros. I was going to put it up. But even when you look at it on paper, you're like, I don't get it. It's too big. Now, when we say, you know, so one of our values is multiplication, right? When we talk about that, what we mean is essentially this, okay, that we want to be invested in people over programs because programs can add but people can multiply. If one person if brought another person to Christ who in turn brought another person to Christ every year, in 10 years, just, just, if that just started with one person, in 10 years, that would be 512 people added to the kingdom. In 20 years, it would be 524,000 people added to the kingdom, in 30 years, it would be 536 million people. Now, look, that's just math, okay? That's not reality. Those are just numbers. And I'm not saying that that is the way that things happen in real life because they often do not happen that way. Obviously, no church in the world is is growing at that rate, you know, not even in third world countries where the church is exploding but uh, the point isn't the math. The, the point is the concept. Um, the church, as an organization, is not powerful. The church, as a disembodied idea, is not powerful. The church, as a building, 
is not powerful, but that was never what God meant for the church to be, to people. Here's, a, here's our point for today. I've been doing this throughout this series. Right? It makes it easy for you guys. Here's the point for today. A gospel-centered church values, loves, and serves people over programs. That's it. Simple. Now, we've been talking about all this stuff, right? We're talking about the throne of God at the center of all reality and how that should stir all of our worship and how we need to be creatures of the word and how the Bible needs to be at the center of everything that we do because we can't do anything without it. We can't even understand what we don't know if we don't have the word. And that leads us to mission, to the people around us, to people who don't know Christ. That's the most loving thing that we can do for them, even though at times it may seem offensive. But in fact, if we believe what we say, if heaven and hell are real, and if God is really offering this kind of grace and love to anyone who would accept it, then how unloving are we to not offer that to the people around us and to take that to the nations where they don't have it when we have tons of it here? And what we're going to talk about today is essentially love. Because love is the connective tissue between all of these things. These things don't work without love. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's, let's open them up to uh, John. John chapter 15. Uh, Gospel of John. Chapter 15. Um, verses, we're going to start in verse 12. And if you don't, you don't have your Bible, you can just look up at the screen. John 15, 12. We'll read uh, 12 through 17. And this is God's word, and it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, this is no simple command that Jesus gives to his disciples. Remember, this is part of the upper room discourses. This is part of the end of Jesus' life just before he goes to the cross. So he knows he's going to go die. He knows that he's going to endure immense suffering. That's coming up. He knows his disciples are going to go through a period where he's in the grave and they're, you know, they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. And so he's preparing them and he's giving them this series of teachings. And here in, in chapter 15, what he's just talked about is about the vine and the branches. If you guys are familiar with that, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. He talks about how we have to abide in him, and if we abide in him, we can bear fruit, and if we abide in him, we can have uh, fullness of joy, that our joy may be complete in him. And immediately following that, he says this. He gives them this commandment. He's actually repeating something that he said in chapter 13, but he goes into it in a little more depth. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Now that right there can be That alone can be difficult, but when you add this qualifier, as I have loved you, that adds an immense weight to that command, right? It's one thing to say, love one another. 
It's, a, it's one thing for God to say love one another. It's another thing for Jesus, who is about to give up his own life on the cross, to say love one another as I have loved you. So let me, uh, let me talk about a few ways that we can do that. Okay, how can we step into this kind of love, the kind of love, he says it right there, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends, and he's pointing out, He's obviously foreshadowing what he himself is going to do. How can we do that particularly in the world that we live in? So here's one. Consider. Consider covenant over emotions. Consider covenant over emotions. Now, the world tends to overemphasize emotions in love, right? This is something that's typical. We, we see it all the time, you know, in a, kind of in TV or in movies. Even the language that we use, right? Uh, I fell in love with somebody. You know, we, we tend to use this kind of language. This is a big difference between basically what, what Christians think about the idea of marriage versus what the world thinks about the idea of marriage. Uh, for the world, it's kind of contractual, right? It's uh, if you do this, I'll do this. But if you do your part, I'll do my part. It is this almost like a business relationship. There's all these emotions involved, but that's kind of at the end. And if you don't do your part, then I don't feel like I'm, I need to do my part, you know, because this is a contract, right? Whereas the Christian notion is covenant built on the gospel, which, in, which Jesus says, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to lay down my life for you, right? And there is a call to be faithful, certainly not a call to be perfect, though. Certainly not a bunch of stipulations that we have to keep, and if we don't keep them, then God stops loving us. No, that's, that's not the way it works at all. But the world is not like that, right? It's not the way that we think. It's, it's not, this isn't a very, like, romantic notion, right? If you watched a movie and this was the idea, then you'd be like, ah, is, I don't know. Like, this isn't giving me the, the feels, right? It's not giving me what I'm, it's not making me feel the way that I'm supposed to feel when I'm watching this kind of movie. Every single, you know, like, love means never having to say you're sorry. Like, every time you hear something, like, you complete me. You know, every time a line like that, you know, nobody puts baby in a corner. I don't know why I thought dirty dancing. But, you know, like, that kind of stuff, like, those things aren't really love. Like, that's not what you're seeing. It's the culmination of infatuation. Right? Because it's like a love at first sight kind of deal, and then there's some flirty montage where they're running through a park in slow motion, you know, or something, or they're going on a bunch of dates and all these interesting things are happening. Or it's like if, you ever, if you've ever watched The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, the, the dates they go on are like to, you know, it's like Fiji and like, you know, Hawaii. It's like all these spectacular places and you're thinking, well, I mean, it's not real life though, right? Like that's not what every single hangout is going to be like. And oftentimes what you're looking at is not love, it's it's not it's just emotions it's infatuation now that notion is furthered every time a celebrity couple gets divorced right every time you watch a tv show they get divorced and it's funny because that idea persists of course you can do that 
because you fell into love, so you could fall out of love. Right? If it's, if it's just something that happens, not something you decide or do, then it's not something you can control. Therefore, it's not something you're responsible for. It just either happens or it doesn't happen. I feel like it and I do it or I don't feel like it and I don't do it. And I'm not responsible for that because I can't control what I feel. You, you really can't control what you feel all the time. But you can control whether or not you love all the time. Love is a commitment. If everyone loved solely on the basis of emotion, probably nobody would be loved. If everyone loved only if they were first loved, then certainly nobody would be loved. That is axiomatically true. That's necessarily true. Because if everyone loved only if they were first loved, then nobody would be first loved. Therefore, nobody would ever love. Now, the good thing for us is we have already been spectacularly loved by Jesus. The reason that this, although it's a a weighty command, is a possible command, is because he says, as I have loved you, and because he has loved us, because he has gone to the cross, because he has suffered for our sake, Because he did die and prove his love for us. And so we can always look to Jesus and be able to love because, not just as he has first loved us, but because he has first loved us. So that's the first thing, okay? Let let our love be driven by covenant, particularly the, the covenant that Jesus has made with us rather than uh, merely our emotions. Not that emotions are a bad thing, but certainly they won't always be there. Here's Here's a second thing. Focus on service over ambition. Focus on service over ambition. Right, I'm going to look at another passage. This is from Mark 10, Mark 10, 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now remember, the pre-resurrection disciples... okay, The disciples, when they're following Jesus before he dies and rises again from the dead, they have ambitions... And we talked about this, right? Even when they're called, why, do they, why are they excited when they're called? Not because Jesus says, come follow me and I'll give you stuff. But he says, come follow me and I'll give you a purpose. Like, I, I'll, I'll teach you what life is about. Right? For them, that's, they had some ambition there. They're like, oh, a, a teacher is calling me. I can be this person's disciple. I can be somebody. For them, that's moving up. You know, in the, in the social ladder. So they're thinking, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And then they see what Jesus can do. They see the miracles he can perform. They see the power that he has. They see the authority that's in his teaching. And they're thinking, I'm going to stick close to this guy because he's going places. 
So they're doing a three-year-long, you know, unpaid internship, right? And they're coming to this point where Jesus is talking about, and what Jesus talks about just prior to this section, of, he talks about how he's going to suffer and die. And right after he, he tells them about how he's going to suffer and die, James and John come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, can, you, can we sit at your right hand, <laughs> you know, and your left hand in your kingdom? And it's like, you know, they're just missing it, right? It's going right over their heads. He's saying, I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And they're like, Jesus, we want to be your right-hand man, you know, your right hand and your left hand. That's what prompts this whole conversation. And then the other disciples are mad, not because, <laughs> you know, and you would, you would think one of them would be like, hey, like, don't you get it? Jesus is talking about how he's going to suffer and die. What an insensitive thing to say that, you know, I'm going to, like, can I be at your right hand or your left hand? No, they're mad because they didn't think of it first. They're like, you know, probably, you know, Peter, and this is one of the cases where Peter's not the one who's stepping up and saying something, right? So he's probably mad. He's probably in the back like, oh, man, I'm, I'm Peter. You know, I should be the one being at Jesus' right hand. And so they're all mad. And while they're squabbling with one another, Jesus says, don't you get it? The kind of love that I have for you, the ethic of the kingdom, it's not like the world, you know, this, when he talks about the Gentiles, he's, he's talking about the world standards, like the way that the world operates. Don't you get it? The way that they operate. They are, the, what they want from people is to exercise authority over them. Right? They want to be the boss so they can tell people what to do, so they can be in control, so they can have power, so they can be recognized. And he says, that's not the way that it is in the kingdom of God. Ambitions. You know, when we have ambition and we pursue it and we achieve it, it glorifies us. It glorifies self. But service rendered for the sake of others glorifies God. I think, you know, I I remember I was reading this book, uh, Ordinary, by uh, Michael Horton. It's uh, a while back. And he would tell this story about a guy who just grew up in a regular town and, you know, in, in like the Midwest, lived near his, his high school and his family, like his whole life, faithfully attended church and gave and served, and then he died. And how people today would look at something like that and it would be such a tragedy. You know, like I, I thought about that actually reading the word every day and being faithful in prayer and faithfully attending church and serving people and, you know, praying for missionaries and financially supporting them and being hospitable to friends and neighbors, living a simple, modest life, maybe never owning a home, maybe never having, you know, never buying new things, not going on extravagant trips, having kind of a boring Instagram feed, right? Like that, having that kind of life, it's kind of a nightmare for millennials, honestly. That's like that's like a that's like the that's like one of the scariest things you could tell to somebody. Like if the ghost of Christmas future came back, you know, to your life and said, "Here's your life. It's, this, is what, this is what the next thirty years of your life is going to be. You're going to live in the same place. You're going to go to the same church. You're going to have the same friends. You know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to faithfully serve God, and you know, all your friends will like really care about you and love you and respect you. But like, no trips. You know, nothing fancy. No big house." Some, I, I think tons of millennials would think, oh my gosh, 
That is a nightmare. Our tendency is toward ambition. Whatever that looks like, it will look different for some of us. Maybe in our job, maybe in our career, maybe wealth-wise, maybe socially. But Christ is, is towards service. Service is our expression of love toward God and toward one another. Do you know what? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, like, if you've dated when you're in, like, high school, you had a high school little, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe junior high, something like that. Right? You know, you date for, like, two weeks and you think it's eternity. Do you know what high school couples do oftentimes? Like, how they express their love for one another? They tell each other. And they say really ridiculous, like, stupid things, right? Like, I would do anything for you. You know, like, I would die for you. I would, like, go over here. I would, like, go, you know, if people were, if, if there was a car, you know, and, like, you were under it or something, I would just get the superhuman strength. I would, like, pick it up, and I would just pull you out. You know, I was, like, whatever, anything. You know, they just say tons of stuff, right? But what do they do for each other? Like, nothing, right? Like, barely anything. They have no discipline and no money and, you know, no means. They have nothing, right? So all they can do is tell each other how much they love each other all the time. And I've been married for like seven years, seven and a half years. We've got two kids. Most of the expression of my love toward my wife and my family is through, is, it's rendered through service. Right? Bumi's not looking for me to every day be like, I love you so much, you know? You are just, like, so lovely. I mean, not, not that it's bad to say that, right? But if that's all I do, if that's what I sit around doing all the time, like, oh, I love you so much, you know, and I'm watching, like, the Laker game, and there's our house is a mess. It's like, hey, but dear, I love you. I just want you to know my heart is beating out of my chest, you know, filled with love for you and affection for our family, Thank you for doing everything. You know, like, if that's it, that's not, that's not love. Right? These just flowery, romantic phrases. Oftentimes, I think we disguise what is ambition as love for God. But when we actually don't serve him, it becomes apparent that what we care about like, what you care about, that's where your service goes. Your job is service, by the way. You know, whatever you do at your job, it's, it's a service being rendered to someone because they can't do it. If you're a teacher, you teach because other people are not, they can't do that. And so that's, that's what you do, right? Like, if you're a doctor, if you're a, if you're a medical professional, if you're a counselor, you know, whatever you do, whatever kind of work you provide, you're a professional at. You're providing that service because other people can't provide that service for themselves. That's what it is. It's service. The question is, why do you render that service? Is it for money? Is it for your name? Is it so you can advance? I know it's difficult because uh, the notion of self-importance is imposed on us every single day, especially if you look at like social media every day. But let me just 
let me just say, okay, and the reason that the gospel frees us to be able to serve God and people in this way and not have to think about what the world thinks about is because the gospel, as it pertains to your worth, is that your worth, like your value, comes from the fact that you are made in the image of God. Right? It's intrinsic. You have it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You have it by virtue of the fact that you're created in God's image. Now, of course, it gets twisted and broken because of sin. That's the reality of the world that we live in. But in Christ, it is also reformed and remade and redeemed. It can be. That's what Jesus invites us into. That's, that's most who we are. That's most where our worth and value comes from, whether we believe it or not. That's true. God wants us to believe it. When we do, we become free to serve other people and not ourselves. Here's a, a third way, I think. This, of course, is exemplified in Christ's own love for us. Here's, a, here's the third thing. Um, seek to be compassionate toward people rather than plugged into community. Seek to be compassionate toward people rather than plugged into community. When Jesus says, love as I have loved. Do you know what, do you, know what you see all the time? Like if you look at the Bible and you look at what prompts Jesus to act oftentimes, it is this word, compassion. The word compassion appears a bunch of times, you know, if you search kind of in the original languages. It appears in the Old Testament, you know, 80, 80 plus times, New Testament, 20 plus times. Do you know how often the word community appears in the Bible? Zero. The word community, we get it from a Latin word, communitas. That word is not in the Bible. I don't have a problem with the word community, obviously. But uh, I get a little upset because I feel like it's been hijacked by our culture. It's such a loaded term at this point that everyone is using to describe all different kinds of things. Our tendency is toward community, but Christ's is toward compassion. The thing is, community, the term, is not a person. When you think about community, you don't think about a person. When you think about loving community or being connected in community or being plugged into community, you don't think about people. In fact, oftentimes what we think about, and this ends up happening a lot of times in churches, is that what people feel is, what people think about is this idea of closeness. Am I close to people? This is in fact, and I hear this all the time. You know, when I talk to, I talk to Christians, and, and I, I have tons of conversations with, like, random Christians, too. I don't, it's just God, like, you know, like, being a pastor, you just run into people. Like, I'll just be playing ball or something or at a coffee shop, and I just, that happened, like, three times this week. But, you know, you just run into people, and, like, they don't, you know, n- none of them go here. And it's just like, hey, what's up, and what's going on with you, and how are you? And there's always this thing that comes up. 
about community. It's this idea of community. And there's this obsession that we have in today's culture about feeling close to people. It's one of those really weird things. It's kind of something that doesn't affect your life until you think about it. It's almost like a paper cut, right? Like, you ever had a paper cut before? A paper cut can be very painful, right? But it also can be, like, you can ignore it completely if you don't notice it, right? You're, just, you're like, oh, you just cut your finger, and then your finger's bleeding, and you don't notice it, and then somebody says, oh, you, you, you know, your finger's bleeding, like, like you have a paper cut, right? And then you look at it, and you see the blood, you know, it's dripping out. And then what happens? The whole rest of the day, right? You cannot not think about it. It's all you're thinking about. Every time you type, every time you turn a page, every time you drive, you do anything, all you're thinking about is this one thing. A paper cut's a paper cut. Uh, it hurts, you know. But it's not really something that demands the whole of our attention either. What I mean to say is this, what we feel is lacking when we think about the notion of community is far greater than what is actually lacking. That's what we turn the idea into. This is a consumer idea. It's not, it's not new or different. And I think, in fact, a lot of churches in America, we've made this mistake. We have bent to consumer culture because Community is one of the things, even statistically, that people believe that they want the most. But the truth is, the Bible doesn't talk about it that much. At least not in the sense that we think of, in the sense of closeness. How close am I to somebody? Here's what, um, this is a quote from A.W. Tozer. Says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. This is is an incredible quote. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you really want to have a heart that's close to someone, it won't happen by looking at each other. The way that it happens is if there is some other standard by which both of you must bow to, Right? By which both of you must live, by which both of you or all of you must adhere to. Right? Pianos don't tune to each other. Like if people in the, if the praise band, when they came up, they use a tuner, right? Like if they came up and they're all trying to tune to each other, then they start getting off. Right? Then people start getting off and you start going in weird directions and you start thinking weird things. And this happens when we try to have community without the gospel. Community can't form the gospel. Community can't create the word of God, nor can it create in us a purposeful mission. It works the other way. When we come and say, I'm here because I want to sit before the throne, because I want to be a creature of the world, because I want want to know what it is that God has for us 
to do, what he wants to do with us, how he wants to move us, then we will find ourselves immersed in community. But if we come seeking community, what we will often find are cracks. We will find a lacking community. We will find people imperfect. We will find that we are not as loved as we wish we were. We are not as exalted and cared for as we deserve to be. And the worship of God and the mission of God and the word of God will fade because we will lose the tuner and we'll be trying to tune to each other. God's call for us isn't to be preoccupied counting how many people we feel like we're close to. He wants us to focus on how we can love the people we know. And that's far less about creating opportunities and it's more about making the most of the opportunities we have. It's, it's less about finding the right people to love as it is about learning how to love the people that you're with all the time. I think um, sometimes we don't realize how privileged we are. Like, if, if, you're, if you're a member of this church, if you're, or if you church, attend church regularly, if you're a Christian, I think we forget how precious it is to have that the opportunity to do that at least once a week. Right? I was having a conversation, you know, with someone recently and and you know, she's not a believer and she was saying it's weird like <laughs> oftentimes, you know, I'll 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 talk to her and I and I was saying something to her. I was just sharing with her about life and she was sharing with me and I prayed for her afterwards and she would say like like she appreciated that so much and oftentimes i think about it and i think man do we realize because i know so often when we come we're concerned about what's happening and what people think and you know what is the status of 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 our relationships with people rather than thinking i mean i could just tell anybody right now like as if you're believers this is what christ invites us into right this kind of it's an automatic community. It's one that he creates. You can just go to another believer and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm struck. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? You can go to any other believer and say, hey, what's, what's going on with you? You know, can I pray for you? Can I help you? Can I serve you? Can I love you? That is, that's what Jesus invites us into and he demonstrates it himself. I'll just say this last thing in closing. I know oftentimes we feel like, but that, uh, the idea of that is very burdensome, right? To think that, well, I need to be, you know, just loving and giving other people. Now, I'm not saying it should just come from nowhere. It comes from Christ himself. But also, you know, like Jesus says, it's better to love than, uh, it's better to give than to receive. Like, that's true. When we love, it's the expression of the love that we have received in Christ. It is far greater. When we love, love expands. Love grows. When we love, then other people love. They love us back and they love other people. Not always. Not all the time. Sometimes they won't. But oftentimes that's what happens. And you have a multiplicative love rather 
than just an additive one coming from the top. That's, that's what God creates in a people. That's what he desires us to be. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the incredible love that you have for us, your people. Thank you for the incredible love that you invite us into. God, not just to be um, insular, you know, not just to receive your love and to have it dwell in us, God, but that you allow us to love as you have loved us. God, to love others in the amazing and the powerful and the sacrificial and the beautiful and the glorious way that you have demonstrated love for us. God, we know that there is great joy and power and life in that. And we pray and we ask, God, would you help us to really step into that love? Make us a people, God, that not only talks about that, God, but really lives it out and be with us as we do so. We thank you so much, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.